This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, it is uh, known to almost anyone who has even a passing knowledge of history that religious freedom was one of the primary tenets of the founding of the United States. But as is often the case, that concept isn't always upheld in the truest sense. There are a lot of examples, certainly, of contentious disputes between believers of different religions all over the world, of course. And the U.S. is no exception. But today's topic is actually going to be about a social experiment in religious conversion, which really had extremely altruistic intentions, but it just didn't quite pan out. Uh, and what we are talking about is what is commonly referred to as the heathen school. So first we'll talk a little bit just about where the United States was in terms of religion in the early 1800s. During that time, the Christian revival movement was growing in America it was known as the Second Great Awakening, and enthusiasm for religion came hand in hand with this idea that Christianity was the perfect tool for turning so-called heathen peoples into civilized citizens of the world. And to this end, the Foreign Mission School in Cornwall, Connecticut was founded, and the idea behind this school was that uh, they would draw young men from world cultures that were not seen through the lens, again, of 1800s Americans as properly educated. And the idea was that these these young men would come to the school, they would be converted to Christianity and educated, and then they would be sent back to their native lands to spread their newfound religion and serve their communities. In this way, the revival movement expected that it would so-called civilize the world through seated evangelism. And Cornwall is located in Litchfield County, and it's on the east bank of the Housatonic River. And it was chosen as the location for the school because it had a reputation for fine, upstanding citizens. It was a good community. Uh, they were willing to assist by donating some facilities and land and also help with a little bit of financial assistance. And it was also a very beautiful and idyllic setting, like the perfect place to go and study and learn and grow as a person, which was sort of the mindset of the people that were setting up this uh this whole experiment. 
this brings us to the school's first student. Henry Upukihaia came to the United States from Hawaii working as a cabin boy on a trading vessel, and he was 18 when he got to New Haven, Connecticut in 1810. He'd been brought there by the captain of the ship that he worked on, and he was a refugee orphan with no family to return to in Hawaii. And little did Opukahaia uh, realize that he was kind of going to become something of a poster child for the foreign mission school. It was really him that catalyzed the whole thing. The story goes that Yale President Timothy Dwight's son, Edwin, encountered the 18-year-old Hawaiian, Hawaiian just weeping on the Yale Chapel steps one day. Henry told Edwin that he was crying because he did not have an education. And the Yale president and his peers, when they were told this story, were completely moved by this young man's desire to better himself. And also the fact that he was uh, an orphan, his parents had been killed. You know, he really just was a person that they all wanted to take care of and, and sort of see to his best interests as they saw it. And so they all took turns housing and educating him. And over the next several years... As they took care of this foreigner and they shared their knowledge and they shared their religion with him, an idea really started to swirl socially among them and it gained ground very quickly. I'm going to point out for people who are not from the United States that uh, he was a Hawaiian and a foreigner. Hawaii at this point was many, 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 many years away from becoming a U.S. state. It was not part of the United States at this point. Yes, it was definitely considered a foreign land and a, an exotic foreign land at that. So enthusiasm for missionary work connected to the Protestant Second Great Awakening was really continuing to swell. And at the same time, church leaders recognized that sending Anglo-Americans into other cultures to spread the word wasn't really all that effective. Um, a lot of times these missionaries had trouble connecting with indigenous peoples who they were trying to convert. And so the idea of educating natives of these cultures to return to their homelands to spread their newfound knowledge and the Christian religion seemed like the right solution. And after all, I mean, Henry uh, Opukahaya had seemed very, very happy to convert as part of his education. Uh, so this plan was really founded in what they saw as a successful test case. And that early success led to the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions to open up this special school where they could educate dozens of men like Henry. And they really saw it as this great opportunity. So the Foreign Mission School which was located in what's now Cornwall Village, opened in 1817. And it had a dozen students that first year. More than half of them were Hawaiian. And the school was quickly nicknamed, quote, the Heathen School. And it, it did quite well. In the second year, enrollment doubled. Uh, and the student body diversified a bit. It also included men from China, from India, several Native American nations. And by the third year, uh, it had actually really shifted, whereas in that first year, the majority had been Hawaiian. More than half of the students by year three were Native American, including Choctaw, Abnaki, and Cherokee men. So while the school is really often described as a conversion school, and teaching Christian doctrine was definitely part of the plan, the curriculum itself was really focused on their education. Yeah, they had uh, seven-hour days of study, 
And during this time, the men were taught geography, calculus, chemistry, Greek, French, and Latin, in addition to theology. But outside of class, they were still sort of uh, in a structured learning situation. There was work to be done on the school grounds, and they had lessons as well in practical skills like surveying, coopering, uh, blacksmithing. And of course, church attendance was mandatory during this time, so they had to go to prayers every day and to... Um, uh, church lectures. Jedediah Morse wrote about the heathen school in a report to the Secretary of War of the United States in 1820. And one of the things it said was, quote, as these youths are designed for a higher education than is to be expected at our mission schools in heathen countries, it is deemed of no small importance that they be only such as are of suitable age, of docile dispositions, and of promising talents. Yeah, he was describing how they really wanted sort of the creme de la creme, like the the best and most bright and promising young men. And the idea was that these men would go back into their native lands and not just be preachers, but also leaders, educators, healthcare workers, translators. As we said earlier, this was really set up to be pretty altruistic. They wanted these men to fill important roles and to be contributors to their communities. In addition to these gentlemen from the so-called heathen cultures, Anglo-Americans could also go to the school as long as they were serious about their studies and could pay their own tuition. And before we uh, get to sort of how the school fared in terms of its successes and and its uh, reputation, do you want to take a quick word from a sponsor? I do. That sponsor today is Domain.com. So as we have said before, sometimes you have an awesome idea that leads you to need a domain name and web hosting fast. With Domain.com's quick domain discovery system and easy checkout process, you will have a website up and running in no time. We've talked about it before lots of times. Domain.com makes it easy to get that website up and running so you can blog, you can create something to show off your portfolio, you can even make some money if that's what you are after. We like Domain.com because they are affordable, reliable, and easy to use, and you can get 15% off their already affordable prices with our coupon code, which is HISTORY. So you can buy domain names by web hosting or by email with the coupon code HISTORY at Domain.com's checkout. When you think domain names, think Domain.com. So for a while, things really went quite well, uh, particularly as far as converting the students to Christianity. And in that same report to the Secretary of War that Tracy spoke about before the ad break, uh, Morse writes, quote, nor has this instruction been communicated in vain. Of the 31 heathen youths, including uh, with the 26 now at the school, and then I'm cutting out a little part where he kind of details the makeup of those 26, 17 of them are thought to have given evidence of a living faith in the gospel, and several others are very seriously thoughtful on religious concerns. Additionally, the school's renown was spreading outside of New England. In 1820, a Swiss baron sent a donation to the school, along with his letter of praise for its work. And one of the things that letter said was, quote, What I have read of the foreign mission school at Cornwall has given me great pleasure especially as human powers cannot of themselves produce the desired effect, but they produce it only as instruments of the hands of him who is the source of all good, of love and pure charity. And it is thus only that the mind is capable of being fully enlightened. I beg you to use the accompanying sum of a hundred ducats, according to your best judgment, as an external mean, which by divine grace may impart these spiritual blessings inseparable from the attainment of supreme love. 
Yeah, there was uh, there were people in high stature throughout the world that were really, you know, pretty impressed with the the kind of plan of this school and this desire to really better the whole world through education. And the principal of the school at the time, who was Reverend Herman Daggett, wrote a note of thanks to the Baron, and then also to show how very effective the school was at educating pupils, he also had two of the Cherokee students, named Elias Boudinot and David Brown, write letters to the Baron as well. And both letters are a little bit florid, uh, in keeping with the time and also in keeping with, you know, young men uh, who are, you know, kind of just learning kind of to write letters of this nature. They're full of gracious thanks for the Baron's interests. And also they include their thoughts on their schooling. For example, in Brown's letter, he writes, It is a matter of joy to us who are heathens to contemplate the goodness of God in causing his children to have compassion on the poor benighted heathen nations who are yet groaning under the bondage of Satan, the deceiver of mankind. Our hearts ought truly to glow with praise and gratitude to our Heavenly Father, and you're taking such a deep interest for this institution and for the welfare of heathens universally. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to the women on the iHeartRadio app on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. In the principal's letter, he assures the Baron that the students' letters are indeed their own work and their own words and they, that they only had minor corrections of a few words. He seems extremely proud of his charges and the great progress that they've made in their education. 
And in letters from family members to Brown and Boudinot, and these are included in this report uh, as, a, as part of an appendix, there is really great excitement at the adoption of the Christian faith. Um, a letter from Boudinot's mother to her son is really quite touching. She indicates in it that she feels that his education is actually also her education and that she wants to try to follow his example as a new Christian and that when he returns home to them, she is going to you know, follow his example and do as he says and let him be her teacher. One of the larger messages of Morse's report, which was told by letters from students of the heathen school, is that Native Americans are a worthwhile people that are capable of learning and civilizing. So while this is pretty patronizing, um, it's still really far ahead of the very common belief at the time that Native Americans were so-called savages who could not be educated. There are many pleas in the included letters that the president consider education for Native Americans rather than removing them to reservations. So for context, this report was filed about a decade before the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which led to the forced relocation of many Native American tribes. Yeah, that act was really the ideas behind it and the sentiment of sort of fear and just dismay that the idea that Native Americans were on these lands, that was brewing for a long time. And this was an early effort to try to kind of sway that away from like, let's not just push all of these people out of the places they live. Let's try to figure out a way to work together. And student John Ridge wrote in his letter to the president that was included with Morse's report, quote, it is a known fact that those Indians who have missionaries among them and who live on this side of the Mississippi are coming up with faster steps to civilization than those who have been enticed to move west. The idea of evangelizing and civilizing the world, both on United States soil and abroad through this education program, was really popular with church leaders and educators. But the Cornwall locals weren't necessarily thrilled with the idea of a bunch of foreign people in their white Puritan community. One of the concerns was that these foreign men were going to come in and form romantic relationships with their Puritan daughters. And eventually, that is exactly what happened, at least in a couple of cases. Uh, a romance did blossom between John Ridge, who was one of the Cherokee students. We talked about him uh, just before the ad break, and the school steward's daughter, who was named Sarah Northup. And this courtship, which began in 1824, did indeed result in a marriage. Uh, they convinced Sarah's family that they should be married. But the wedding day's joy was certainly and not unexpectedly marred by racial tension. The couple had to make a hasty getaway in a coach to get away from an angry crowd that had gathered. But even once they had been carried away from the ceremony, they faced a really long journey of problems as they traveled to Georgia. All the way to Cherokee country, the couple had to just basically stay on the DL to keep from running into trouble. And I feel compelled to mention again that this is early 1800s pre-Civil War America. So while it's very easy to be sort of angered by the racism in play, in historical context, this was such an unusual marriage. And it was likely the first time that any of the people that John and Sarah were encountering on the way had ever seen such a pair. It's not to say that they had never happened before, but they were not common. Just as the scandal over the Ridge-Northrop marriage was dying down, another courtship was brewing that would really bring things to a fever pitch. About a year after John and Sarah married and left Cornwall, John's cousin Elias Boudinot became involved with a girl from a Cornwall family named Harriet Gold. 
the two of them got engaged against the wishes of basically everyone around them, which just catalyzed a fury among the locals. Yeah, Harriet was from a really good family, which kind of made people even more incensed. Uh, and Harriet and Elias had to hunker down at her parents' house for safety. And as they were kind of seeking refuge there, a huge crowd, which was actually led by Harriet's brother, burned an effigy of the girl uh, who they felt was betraying all of them by falling in love with a Cherokee man. Even though this had to have been terrifying for both of them, They went ahead with their engagement as planned, and the two of them got married in 1826. As John and Sarah had done, Elias and Harriet made their way to the Cherokee Nation after they were married. Yeah, they all kind of, all four of them ended up kind of living in what is now Georgia for a while as, you know, with the Cherokee community. Uh, And after that second marriage, the community really did not settle back down. There were some horrible news reports uh, in the papers that really called the women involved some really disparaging things. And in some ways, you know, those wedding bells in the second marriage sort of served as a death knell for the school as pressures continued to mount against it to shut down for fear that a third girl would be wooed away from her Anglo New England roots and that it would doom more women from their community to raise mixed race children. I think most likely the irony of this was lost on the people who were angry. I'm 100% certain that's the case. (laughs) There were also concerns on the parts of some of the students' families that the climate in Connecticut was having an adverse effect on the health of their sons. Um, Considering how many of them were from more tropical locations, this, this isn't entirely surprising. And some of the young men attending the school who had come from the Pacific Islands did die. Uh, Henry Opukihaya, um, was one of the students who had died. And while he had traveled widely to tell people about the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions and the Foreign Mission School, he never got to go home to Hawaii as a missionary as they had originally intended. He actually died really early in the school's history on February 17th of 1818. Yeah, so even though he had really been the poster child, and remember most of his education had actually happened before the school was founded, uh, he never got to fulfill the goal that was kind of set up because of him, of being able to go back to Hawaii and become a missionary. And in addition to being troubling and upsetting, of course, uh, losing these students to what is sort of often referred to as like a climate-related death, um, there is, it sort of suggests that there was something like pneumonia or a fever uh, that they basically just didn't deal very well with the cold. Uh, it was also a fiscal issue for the school. So remember, one of the goals of this whole endeavor was that they were going to produce missionaries. And if their investment in the education of these men never paid off because of premature death, then the school was basically wasting its money and it couldn't sustain. These three factors, which were community outrage, concern about the health of the students, and fiscal considerations, eventually catalyzed the decision on the part of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions to close the Foreign Mission School in 1826, only nine years after it was founded. And in total, about 100 men had been educated uh, over the course of those nine years by the heathen school. And some of them did go back to their um, lives. Some of them went back to their lives and kind of abandoned 
Christianity and went back to their belief system that they had lived with uh, in their culture as before. So it, it's an interesting experiment, and it's not really something you would necessarily call a huge success, but it did connect uh, Cornwall and this movement to sort of a bigger socio-political picture that was happening and kind of put it in context of the the history of the time in a really important way. Earlier this year, a book by historian John Demos was published about the heathen school, and it was entitled The Heathen School, A Story of Hope and Betrayal in the Age of the Early Republic. In it, he focuses a lot on the racism showed by Anglo-Americans to Native Americans, and he characterizes the issue this way, quote, For the civilizing process imposed a complete renunciation of traditional life ways, as such, it was another form, a cultural form, of removal. In the case of Indians, it meant essentially this. Let them become farmers instead of hunters, Christians instead of pagans, cultured in the man- manner of white people instead of, quote, savage. Then maybe, just maybe, they can be absorbed into the national mainstream. However, by the 1820s and 1830s, many whites had already given up on that possibility. At best, it seemed impractical. At worst, dangerous. And we're coming to favor actual physical removal. Just drive them out. Send them far away, across the Mississippi River at least, and leave them entirely to themselves. And then in parentheses, and let us have their land. Yeah, I mean, I think that pretty deftly sums up kind of what was going on uh, in America at the time as they kind of struggled with this idea of whether or not they could absorb these so-called savages into culture or just push them out. And that was, you know, a lot of what was at the heart of this school being very experimental and kind of uh, seeming to some to really be a ray of hope and a, a possible solution to the problem. Uh, and the body of the school's first famous student, Henry Opokohaya, was moved in 1993 from Cornwall, Connecticut, where he had been buried when he died, to uh, Kahikolu Cemetery in South Kona. And he's honored there with a plaque pronouncing him the first Hawaiian to have converted to Christianity. And his burial spot is cared for and really held in very high honor by many Christian Hawaiians. There are festivals every year that feature it. Uh, and he's considered kind of a hero in many ways. Hi, everybody. My name is Max Homa. And I'm Shane Bacon, and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events, and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover media darling. You, too, could be a co-host of a podcast. And that dream is now a reality. Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour, and our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport that we can't help but love. So do us a favor. Download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In 2010, the Cornwall Historical Society hosted an exhibit called Visions and Contradictions, the Foreign Mission School, 1817 to 1826. The exhibit explored the racial and social tensions which caused the end of the school, and the opening was was attended by descendants of John Ridge and Sarah Bird Northrup and Elias Boudinot and Harriet Gold. And one of the reasons I wanted to 
kind of cover this today is that I think it's interesting that uh, a lot of times when you see this mentioned, um, just sort of in, in quick drive-by form when people talk about it, like online or if you see articles, it's really focused on the religious aspect of it and converting people to Christianity, which is certainly a huge part of it. But what really shut the school down and made it kind of important culturally were the racial tensions around it. And I, I feel like John Demos's book was one of the first to really address that and not necessarily make it so much about like the, the, um, conversion that was part of it. It was kind of interesting and it really does make it a, a pretty interesting, kind of cog in the bigger wheel of racial tensions that was going on in the uh, United States at the time. Yeah. And I really, I feel like in my public school education, especially um, all the discussions about this period of American history um, and relationships between the Anglo-Americans and the Native Americans or between Anglo-Americans and, and slaves and people from Africa really didn't talk about a sort of obvious part of all of that now, which is that the people who are in power, regardless of whether they're actually the majority, are the people who kind of set the standard of what is, quote, civilized and what is, quote, educated. Yes. And, like, what is okay to be on the spectrum. Um, I I don't think I really grasped until much later um, that that's a really subjective measurement and that it's it's definitely set by whoever is in the most power so when we talk about how um, these people really did they were working with with good intentions we're not trying to excuse things that they did that were racist or patronizing but to really put it in the context uh, at the time of like they were part of the group that was in power and so the rules that they followed were considered to be the right ones yeah, and they were, t- at least in the, in the case of this school, they were trying to use their powers in a good way. It was just misguided, but in context, it was the best they could do. So uh, it's a fascinating and, and story. Sort of similarly to when we talked about the Treaty of Waitangi, like, uh, it was also in some ways an improvement <laughs> in some of the more horrifying and terrible things that went on in relationships between European, uh, European people of European descent and Native Americans. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly make the case that um, it, at least these people were sort of considering these people, uh, Native Americans, as maybe not potential equals, but closer to it than they had been viewed by most people at that point. But at least more like human beings. Yeah. Than like animals. Which yeah. Which was the case with a lot of people. Do you have some listener mail to move us away from this troubling topic? <laughs> I do. It's a little heavy. It's one of those topics we could talk about for a long time because it's it's big, big issues that continue to reverberate and we continue to discuss both locally and globally. You know, it's and there's never an easy answer, unfortunately. Uh, so I have a fun piece of listener mail from our listener, Andy, and it is about 
our Klondike Big Inch Land Promotion podcast. Uh, and he says, hi, I just listened to your truly fascinating podcast on the Quaker Klondike Big Inch Land Promotion. And I thought the entire thing was great law school material. And then you mentioned something I literally studied on the first day of my contracts class in law school, the Pepsi Harrier commercial lawsuit, which was uh, Leonard versus PepsiCo. And it was filed by someone who acquired 7 million points, mostly through purchase, and attempted to trade them in for an actual Harrier. As you can imagine, Pepsi told him the commercial was meant to be funny and not an actual offer. He surprisingly, or not surprisingly, the court held in Pepsi's favor with the following language. In light of the Harrier Jet's well-documented well-documented function in attacking and destroying surface and air targets, armed reconnaissance and air interdiction, and offensive and defensive anti-aircraft warfare, depiction of such a jet as a way to get to school in the morning is clearly not serious, even if, as plaintiff contends, the jet is capable of being acquired in a form that eliminates its potential for military use. I found the commercial on YouTube and have linked to it below. We will include that in the show notes. He goes on to say, it's a shame I didn't get to study the Quaker Klondike land promotion, as there must be fabulous cases in both the property and contract areas that have arisen over the years. Uh, I, I'm actually, we got a lot of letters about this Pepsi promotion, and I'm so glad because I don't think Tracy was, but I was conflating it in my head with like the Coke rewards thing. So I was kind of confusing two promotions that were not the same thing at all. Yeah, um, I was so glad because that was a thing I remembered spontaneously while we were literally in the studio and yeah. I had not gone back to look it up. So the fact that so many people immediately knew what it was and told us meant that I did not have to go look it up and that made me really happy. <laughs> yeah, and I was really, really pleased uh, because Andy's email included the quote uh, from the court on the judgment in the matter, which I really, really loved. And I also wanted to give a shout out to another listener uh, whose name is Zoe, and she mailed us a beautiful postcard from uh, Top Copy Palace Museum. And she was talking about her dismay uh, during her trip to Turkey that when they were on their museum tours, the the tour audio was always really brief and sort of perfunctory, and also that they never talked about any of the uh, fabulous women in history. So it's a beautiful postcard. Thank you, thank you, thank you, so Zoe. I'm keeping that one at my desk. Tracy can fight me for it if she wants it. Um, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at our email, which is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and on pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. Uh, you can also purchase Stuff You Missed in History class t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and several other things at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. There's some really fun stuff there. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more related to some of the topics we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, and type in missionaries, and you will find an article called How Missionaries Work. After the failure of the heathen school, things went pretty much back to uh, Anglo-Americans being missionaries. Uh, and you can also go to our website, mistinhistory.com, and you can get show notes. We will uh, include links to research from the episode. One of them has a cool link to a, um, a little paper cutout craft project you can do where you build your own model of the heathen school. And we'll point that out in the show notes. Uh, and if you can think of anything else that you would like to learn more about, you can do that at our parent website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. We hope you visit us at our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not. Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting. Or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class.